disruption uh, may not sound like a good thing, but at least in the world of technology, it's, it's being used as a, a concept about something um, quite positive. So let's just start out with this, and this will kind of frame our conversation this morning. Disruptive technology. You may have heard this term. I assume a lot of you haven't, so I'll just give you a definition here. Disruptive technology is a new technology that has a serious impact uh, on the status quo and changes the way people have been dealing with something perhaps for decades. And this is if you're getting into the tech business and you want to make your billions, you want to be a Bill Gates because he was a disruptor back in the day, uh, invented essentially the personal home computer, then you want to come up with a disruptive technology, either some app that turns everything upside down or some new uh, idea that you manufacture like. Uh, anybody remember when pocket calculators came out? That was a disruptive technology. Things would never be the same. Uh, they came out, and I think they started out being hundreds and hundreds of dollars, and now, of course, they're practically giving pocket calculators away. Home computers, kind of the same thing, although they're not giving those away. Home computers, when they came out, just what, a, what an incredible thing to be able to have an actual computer in your home. Uh, up to that point, they had been consuming, um, you know, rooms in universities, these gigantic computers, but then they, they were able to make them in a smaller size where, where people could have the power of computing in their own homes and in their own businesses. Most recently, of course, or more recently, not most recently, but more recently, smartphones. Um, it used to be, you know, rotary phone and everything. A phone was a way you made a, a, a phone call to Aunt Ethel or, or whatever. Now you carry your smartphone, and some of us actually talk on phones still. Most of us are doing texting. Uh, we're uh, doing relationships through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. We are doing, uh, that's how we do the news. That's how we follow our sports team. That's how we watch movies on our phones. I mean, that it was a very disruptive technology. Things would never be the same after the smartphone came onto the scene. Uh, I think about, in terms of like a disruptive app, maybe. How about Uber? Um, Uber is changing the way people get from point A to point B. Um, how many of you guys have ever used Uber? Raise your hand. Yeah, a lot of us. Uh, it looks like at least half, maybe more of this church has used Uber before. Um, it is cheaper than calling a cab. It is usually faster than calling a cab. It's much more convenient. There is no tipping that goes on in Uber. In fact, you never even get out your wallet. You have an account. You just get in the car. You go from point A to point B. You get out. You say, thank you very much. It is a very simple thing. Um, it is a, but it is a disruptive technology. I mean, weeks ago, it was violent, chaotic protests by taxi drivers, by that union in Paris, France, um, that they were upset that, that this has upended the way people are getting around. They're not hailing a cab anymore. In Dallas, if you've been reading the Dallas Morning News the last couple of days, hopefully it won't get violent, but the same dynamic is happening here. The taxi drivers are very upset at this technology that has come in and has caused this disruption. What had held true for decades and decades all of a sudden is turning upside down. Um, in Rio, we were there uh, starting in the late 
uh, 90s there in Brazil, and it cost us in the late 90s about $8 a minute. Go to Skype here. It cost us about $8 a minute to make a phone call back to the U.S., and then this program called Skype comes out. How many of you guys have Skyped before? Okay, most of us have. Uh, this comes on, and it, it's free! It's free to talk to people in the United States. In fact, you can have a face-to-face -face video conference with, with friends and family back in the States. It disrupted um, the telephone marketplace. Um, now there's 3D printing. That's a disruptor. There's uh, disrupting the manufacturing industry. There's Netflix that is to and Amazon Prime video stuff that's totally disrupting the cable TV industry. Um, one that we're reading about that's so fascinating uh, to think about. Imagine the future with this are driverless cars. Um, driverless cars are coming our way and it will not be long. Probably in 10 years, you'll see a lot of Google cars or driverless cars uh, around the streets of Dallas. And as a father who is teaching a second 15-year-old child to drive, um, and that is a harrowing experience to teach a teenager to drive. I'm okay with this. I think driverless cars sounds like a pretty good thing to me. I've seen the way people drive. Uh, I think computers might do a better job, okay? Um, so we live in an age of unprecedented, disruptive innovations. Um, of course, when there is a, there always, when there is a disruptive technological or other innovation that is a great value to people, there is always opposition. The stakeholders of the status quo do not like it one bit, and they do not go gentle into that good night. Now, in the book of Acts, we see the disruptive impact of the gospel. It is a disruptor for sure, colliding with, with thousands up to this point in the story in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9. Thousands of people have collided with the gospel, and their lives have totally been upended. The way they think about God is upended. The way they think about talking with God has been upended. The very reason they exist has been upended by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus um, through his ministry of reconciliation, his message of love, he launched this revolution. But with the church, the launch of the church in the book of Acts, this revolution that Jesus started is now, as we're watching it unfold, it is going viral, it is going global. Um, it seems to have no limits. It's reaching all sorts of people now, as we said, most disruptive shifts and adaptations, um, they cause uh, bu the business world or whatever sector they have arrived in uh, some adaptation and change over a period of time. The gospel is different. It is still to this day causing these disruptions, causing these changes. It is still rocking the world today. Now, in Acts chapter 9, we get a glimpse of just how the gospel disruption occurs. Previously, uh, previously in Acts, um, we have been introduced to a, a man named Saul. Saul was a well-educated, uh, in the law of Moses, a well-educated Pharisee, uh, a very bright thinker, a, a good communicator, and, and who has this passionate heart 
for defending what he believes is the truth. Um, he has become Saul. He has become the leader of the anti-Jesus opposition. Okay, Saul, the leader of the anti-Jesus opposition. He participated, uh, a willing and eager participant in the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, an execution that would, would ripple out and cause uh, waves of violent persecution against the early church. Um, Saul, I think, perceived uh, the potential disruption that the gospel would cause, and he was intent on stopping it, on crushing it. So he quickly went from being, Saul, a participant in the opposition to being the prime leader in the opposition to the Christian church. He would go with sort of a, a orthodox religious uh, SWAT team. He would kind of go from house to house and he would knock down doors and he would drag off women and men and carry them off to, to prison and trial and, and, and hopefully for him execution because that was the way they were going to stop this Christian, this gospel disruption. Check this out, the first couple of verses of Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. This is Saul. This is what he's about. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them back, both men and women, to Jerusalem in chains. So it was time to quash the gospel disruption once and for all. This was Saul's calling. This was the reason he woke up in the morning. This was what he wanted to be remembered for. This would be his legacy. I am the one who led um, the effort to destroy the church. That's what I want to be. That's my contribution to the faith. Okay, that's what Saul was thinking. Um, footnote here. Very, I think a very interesting footnote that sometimes gets overlooked. Um, Saul, as a... As a Jewish thinker and, and uh, um, an expert in the law, Saul had been trained very well, um, and his, his rabbi had been a world-renowned, wise, brilliant, uh, well-respected rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. So back in his earlier days, that was the rabbi who trained Saul. Um, and later... In his career, as Saul is kind of bolstering his credentials, we kind of see how important Gamaliel was because he kind of name drops a little bit. Um, in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, uh, Saul is defending himself and his credentials. He says, I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, okay? The Harvard of Torah law. I was under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. Well, maybe he should have paid a little more attention to his rabbi. Uh, maybe he should have paid a little more attention uh, to what Gamaliel was all about. Because back in Acts chapter 5, rewind a little bit, the apostles had been arre arrested. Okay? The Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, is determined to deal with this Christian movement. And so they have arrested the apostles, and they are getting ready. They are all pretty much of one accord here. Let's just kill them and be done with it. One voice speaks up. 
and says, not so fast. One courageous voice who wasn't one of the Christians said, I don't think this is a good idea. Of course, that was Gamaliel. Okay? In Acts chapter 5, verses 33 to 35, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. But one member, but one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men, the apostles, be sent outside of the council chamber for a while. Now here's what he said once the apostles were out of the room. Pick it up in verse 38. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves, echoes of Saul, you may even find yourselves fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. So this wise rabbi who trained Saul, Paul, um, his counsel is, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Let's not touch them. It will all work itself out. There is no need for violence here. Um, well, Saul wasn't interested in leaving the Christian movement alone. He had a very different strategy in mind, and it was an all-out, using all means possible, assault against the Christian church. So Saul got letters from the high priest that authorized him to go up to Damascus, Syria, and deliver these, and, and, and the synagogue leaders would then be, uh, by word of the high priest in Jerusalem, um, ordered to turn over names of any Christian that they knew about there in Damascus. Now, this is where we pick up the interesting part of the story today. Then on that highway outside of Damascus, boom, disruption, divine disruption. A brilliant light from heaven. Disoriented, Paul falls onto the ground. Um, this voice speaks directly to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Um, Saul answered. And then this in chapter 9, verses 5 to 6. The voice replied, I am Jesus. I am the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now remember... This vision occurred while Saul was en route to persecute the brothers and sisters there in Damascus, the followers of Jesus in Damascus. For Saul, the entire Christian movement, you've got to understand why he is so convicted, why he is so passionate in his opposition. For him, the entire Christian movement is built on a lie, an insidious heretical falsehood that the blasphemous rabbi Jesus who had claimed to be the son of God that he was raised from the dead 
Everything they believed was built on that lie. And here on the road, just outside of Damascus, he met Jesus, encountered his glory, and had a conversation with him. Can you say disruption? Suddenly and powerfully, he collided with the resurrected Jesus. He hadn't been doing God's work. He had been destroying God's work. Jesus was Christ. Jesus was Lord. Upending, so upending was this disruption, this encounter with Christ, that it produced a total 180 degree turnaround for Saul from persecutor to preacher from heresy hunter to gospel proclaimer from loathing the church to loving the church 180 degrees after his encounter with Jesus so back to the road to Damascus after this encounter with Jesus he was blind temporarily blinded for several days, so he had to be led into the city where he stayed on Straight Street at Judas's house. He would remain there blind for several days. He would, trying to process what just happened, he was praying and he was fasting there. And during this time, another person there in Damascus had a vision. This guy's name is Ananias. He is a Christian brother. Ananias has this vision. Um, and this, by the way, Ananias was one of those people who was probably going to be arrested. Okay? Probably was going to be arrested and going to be hauled off to Jerusalem in chains to be put to death. Well, he has his own vision. Okay? Jesus comes to Ananias on Straight Street and says, and gives him this address on Straight Street and says, Ananias, I need for you to go to this address and I need for you to have a conversation with this man named Saul from Tarsus about what he needs to do to follow Jesus. Now, I love the honesty. The Bible just doesn't cover things up. It tells us the way it is. This is a very honest and very raw response from Ananias when he receives this vision about Saul. Check this out in verses 13 to 14 from the message. Ananias protested, Master, you can't be serious. Are you kidding me? Everybody's talking about this man and the terrible things he's doing, his reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem, and he has shown up here with papers from the high priest that give him the license to do the same to us. Now, generally, I suppose if you have an imp a personal encounter with God, if you have a powerful vision from the Lord, you're not going to be back-talking. Okay, generally, but I think we can give Ananias a break here because essentially he's being asked to go to this address and have coffee and conversation with a religious terrorist who would like very much to kill him. Okay? If you have a vision tonight and the Lord tells you, buy a plane ticket, go to the Middle East, here is an address, maybe it's in Syria or maybe it's in, in western Iraq, and I want you to go to this address, there you're going to find the leader of ISIS. 
And I want you to sit down, I want you to share some coffee, and I want you to share your faith. I think you might say, are you serious, Lord? Are you serious? Um, Jesus says, yes, I'm serious. In fact, I have big plans for Saul, who will become Paul. And pardon me if I mix the... We'll just call him either one today, okay? Saul or Paul. Um, I have big plans. In fact, he is going to be the bridge to the non-Jewish people. He is going to be the one that really takes this message into the Roman world outside of Israel. So Ananias got up. He went there to that address. He talks with Saul, and he finds a Saul who is ready to give his heart to Jesus. And so he talks with Saul. He baptizes Saul in the name of Jesus. They sit down and they have a meal together. So like we said earlier, divine disruption of the gospel, it's not just something we read about in the pages of history, in the pages of the Bible. It's happening still today. And while I don't expect that any of us have had a conversion experience exactly like that experience that Saul had, there are elements in his experience that we share and that the believers who came to faith, all of them in the book of Acts, share with us. And it is important that I think we see these elements that we share. So we're not going to give like a comprehensive list. We're going to go to this particular story this morning and see what happened to Saul that we share and that other Christians all share in terms of our conversion experience. The first thing is this. This is on your outline this morning. All right, What, what Saul assumed, and what pretty much everyone assumed in terms of theology, in terms of religious beliefs, was that salvation was for the righteous. Okay? You work hard enough, you pray hard enough, you give enough, you, you read enough scripture, then you might end up being saved. You might become righteous enough. Salvation is for the righteous. What Saul found out, this is a disruption in what pretty much everybody thought, and certainly Saul thought, what Saul found out is that salvation is, no, it's not for the righteous, it's for sinners. Salvation is for sinners. And if that doesn't sound disruptive, think again. Because basically every religion in the world says the same thing. Do. Do this, do that, you get saved. Do the five pillars of Islam and maybe Allah will have mercy on you and save you. If you're a Buddhist, do good works, die, be reborn, in your next life do even more good works, and then in your next life do even more good works, and eventually you'll be good enough. So do. That's what the religions of the world say. Christianity says done. Your salvation is accomplished. All that needed to be done was done by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so what we do, our good works, our ministries, those come out of our gratitude. They come out of our response for what God has already done for us through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ because there is no one righteous, no, not one. Only Jesus is righteous. So under that understanding, under that plan, God will save the righteous. Well, only one person in the history of the world will be saved. Jesus. But salvation isn't for the righteous. It's for the sinners. It's for the sinners. So the cross is at the center 
of this spiritual disruption. Remember what Jesus said on the cross, his very last words. Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. It's done. Gospel literally means good news. Sinners are saved. This is good news. Based not on their merit, based not on their own religious accomplishments, not on their own resumes, they're saved on the blood of Jesus. That's how, if any of us get to heaven, and I believe we're going to get to heaven, we're going to get to heaven based on the righteousness of Jesus. That's where our confidence is, not in our own, in our own good works. And this turned Paul's world upside down. Why? Think about it. Once he learned, think about his case. Put yourself in his shoes. Once he learned that Jesus wasn't some blasphemer, but that he was the Messiah, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Holy One, he was toast if salvation was for the righteous. It was game over for Saul. How many innocent people had Saul arrested? How many families had Saul destroyed by hauling off one or more of the family members to, to, a, to jail and execution? How many Christian murders had he been an eager and willing participant of? He was a bad man. Ananias told Saul in Acts 22, verse 16. And now, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. All of Saul's sins, all of them, forgiven. Because of Jesus, because of that name. What had Saul think about? Again, in Saul's shoes, what had Saul done to deserve this? Nada, zilch, nothing. He had done nothing to deserve this up to his point in his journey. All he had done was murder a whole bunch of innocent people, okay? And yeah, he had done some nice religious things and, and knew the Bible really well, but he had murdered a bunch of innocent people. And later in life, Saul would understand grace, or Paul would understand grace better than I think anybody else because of this. He wrote in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 44, For all have sinned. All of us have sinned. None of us are righteous, okay? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Salvation isn't for the righteous few who've kind of got things worked out. The gospel disrupts everything by proclaiming, no, salvation is for the sinners. In fact, that's why Jesus came, to seek and save the lost. And so Paul wrote to his friend Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. This is beautiful. Just got to let, some, let some, each phrase kind of soak in here, soak into our spirits. This is a trustworthy saying. Everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus, he came into the world to save sinners. Who did he come to save? Sinners. 
He came to save people like us. And Paul says, and I am the worst of them all. Thinking back on his past, I'm the worst. You guys haven't done anything close to what I did. I was terrible. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience even with the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Essentially, Paul is writing here, look, Jesus saved me so people can go, whoa, if Jesus can save Saul, if Jesus can save Paul, I know he can save me. That's basically what Paul is saying here. And so until the gospel collided with Paul, he thought, like just about everybody else, and a lot of religious people think today that God loved the righteous people, the good people, the ones who were getting things figured out, and those who, and that God would save those who were holy, or at least holy enough. Know this, salvation is for sinners like Paul, it's for sinners like us. Now following this disruption, so this is kind of closely related Here's the next thing on the, on the outline this morning. Salvation comes from. Okay? So here's some things that we're marking through that, that Saul would have believed before he met Jesus. Okay? Salvation. Well, that comes from performing good works. It comes from the alms you give at the temple. It comes from that, that nice project that you were involved in the other day where you helped out this, this widow lady. It, it comes from how many verses you've memorized. It comes from your church attendance. That's where salvation comes from, stuff like that. Or religious devotion, kind of the same idea there. It comes, salvation comes from religious devotion or salvation comes from following your conscience. I mean, Saul was following his conscience. I mean, what he did, this destructive campaign against the church, he thought it was right. Well, it doesn't come from any of that stuff. And those are all good things, okay? Um, but that's not where salvation, that's not where our salvation comes from. And people still struggle with grace. They still do to this day. Um, it is still a disruptive idea, a revolutionary disruptive idea. I believe it always will be something that we wrestle with, that we never fully understand. Um, I mean, the people God accepts are the ones Who've, who've done enough. The people God accepts, well, those have to be the ones who've, who've prayed enough or who, who, or who have followed what they believe in with all of their hearts. No. That's not how it works. And Paul, to make the point, in Philippians chapter 3, he writes this, this long, um, essentially, resume of all of the good things that he had done. All the things you could say about Paul, these are great things. Because he hadn't just done evil things before he came to Christ. He had done a lot of good things, too. He was a, a mix of good and bad, like all of us, I suppose. And so he writes this list of all of the good things. And then, in the middle of that list... He disrupts things by stating in, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, he said, Once I thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them what? Worthless. Because of what Christ has done. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. 
So I can gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness, for God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. Depends on faith. So he traded all of his resume, the good, the bad, and the ugly, his accomplishments, he trades that all in. He says, it's not even worth comparing to what Jesus did for me. So salvation comes from, and this is that next bullet there, it comes from Christ and Christ alone. That is where our salvation comes from. Now, in his story and other stories, there are different nuances of faith. Um, I don't believe baptism is something different from faith. I think it's part of the faith response to Jesus. I don't think repentance is something different from faith. Okay, I think it's part of a faith response. Confessing Jesus, part of a faith response. Faith. Faith is what saves us. Faith in the name of Jesus. Um, so, two things here. Faith in Jesus. Specifically... Um, that moment that you can remember, that's the point, baptism. Baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Because it's at that moment in Saul's journey, he knew for a fact all of his sins had been dealt with. What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That moment, from then on, he knew his sins had been dealt with by Jesus. And so that baptism became this marker between old and new, and you see that throughout the writings of Jesus, or the writings of Paul. When he talks to people about baptism, it's never to convince them to be baptized. He's always talking to people like in Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 6, he's all, or Colossians chapter... He's, he's always talking to people who have already been baptizing. He's saying, remember the before and the after. You all have put on Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. Your sins have been washed away. This is who you are. Be this. Okay? So we're saved like Paul by placing our faith not in our own righteousness, not in our ability to get things right, but in Christ and Christ alone. By the way, we've seen thousands of examples. We're just now in Acts chapter 9. We've already seen thousands of examples, 3,000 just in Acts chapter 2. Thousands of examples of people giving their lives to Christ. Thousands. In just the first few chapters of Acts, nobody raised their hand and said, I love Jesus, to get saved. No one prayed a sinner's prayer. Not that those are bad things. They're just not biblical things. What we've seen in every one of these thousands of examples so far in the book of Acts is that people came to Christ by confessing their faith in His name and being baptized into Him. Okay, so that's biblically how you come to Christ. Now, there are nuances, like we've said, in each salvation experience. Um, but, but what thousands have in common in the book of Acts, faith in Christ, baptism in the name of Jesus. You're entitled to your own opinion here. But if your opinion isn't that people need to be baptized when they come to Christ, then your opinion isn't biblical. I mean, just read the book of Acts. Don't judge me, okay? Read the book of Acts and see for yourself that's how people come to Christ. They're baptized in the name of Jesus. So the notion, back to the central idea here, the notion uh, that salvation is from Christ and Christ alone, that is a huge disruptive force. It turned Paul into a very different and a far better person. Um, 
Here's one little detail that's easy to miss in the story, um, in Paul's conversion story, one that's important, and I think that is disruptive to, to a lot of people these days. Here's the thing. If salvation is for sinners, then the church, surprise, surprise, is going to be full of a lot of sinners. Churches are going to be full of imperfect people, strugglers who are at different places on their faith journeys. If salvation is for sinners, there are going to be people at any congregation of believers who are not easy to love. Not always easy to like either. You don't have to amen that, okay? Um, but I know, pe- I, mean, I know people, you know people who think, hey, I love Jesus. I can't stand the church. I want salvation, yes, that comes from Christ and Christ alone, but not the messiness of dealing with people in a local church. That's not for me. But here is the thing. Remember what Jesus said. This is the thing that you can miss in this story, and you should not miss. Jesus, as as Saul is lying prostrate on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute who? Me. Why do you persecute me? Huh? Saul never did anything to Jesus. He never arrested Jesus. He never banged down Jesus' front door and hauled him off. He never put Jesus on trial. He never had Jesus executed. Saul had never done any of those things. But Jesus says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because the church... Imperfect at it as it is, the church that Saul was persecuting, that's the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. Jesus lives in his church. Jesus works through his church. Saul had never directly persecuted Jesus. Saul had been persecuting Jesus because he was hurting the church. Does that make sense? So here's the disruptive thing. We might think I can love Jesus but not the church. But in reality, what we see in his conversion story is that loving Jesus involves being an active part of his church, his body, the church of Jesus Christ. And you know, Paul, think about his situation again. Put yourself in his shoes for a second. Think about Paul here. Paul could have so easily reasoned, look, I'm saved now. It's going to be super awkward if I go to Jerusalem now and I try to get plugged into the church down there because think about it. I'm responsible for destroying their families. I'm responsible for hauling some of their their people, their brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and grandparents off to be executed. That's not going to work. If anyone could have tried to do Jesus without the church, it would have been Paul. But after a time, after a time, he goes back home to Jerusalem. And he tries to get plugged into the church there. And yeah, at first it kind of went like you might expect it, it would have gone. 
chapter 9, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he, he tried to join the church. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Okay, this is just another scheme. Uh, we all know Saul. This is some new gig that he's got. He's trying to get in here and figure out who we are and get us all arrested, but Paul persists. He doesn't quit on the idea of being an active part of the church. He knew that he couldn't serve Jesus. He couldn't really love Jesus without loving his church. And so this key member, you remember the guy Barnabas, my mom's favorite person from the New Testament, because Barnabas was an encourager, a positive person who saw the good in people, who saw the potential in people. Barnabas puts his arm around Saul, goes back into that circle of believers and says, I know this guy. He's preaching the gospel. His conversion to Christ is real. This guy's going to do a lot of good for the kingdom, folks. So he vouches for Paul, and Paul is accepted into the church there in Jerusalem. Paul understood what's obvious if you read the New Testament at all, that loving Jesus has to involve, has to involve loving his broken, messed up, imperfect church full of recovering sin addicts. That's us. One final thought as we finish up this morning. Look, while salvation is by the grace of God, while it is a gift that comes through putting our faith in Jesus in the interest of full disclosure, don't think that you can make Jesus Lord of your life and then just kind of continue as you are. Just kind of add him in there, but your life goes on just as it is. That's not how it works. It's never worked that way. Jesus is a revolutionary. He is the most disruptive force ever unleashed on the planet. Paul's life would never be the same, neither will yours. So that last thing to fill in on the outline, know this. The lordship of Jesus will mean disruption to my plans, to my relationships, and to my money. Why? Well, quite simply, because he becomes Lord. He's Lord of your relationships. He's Lord of your checking account. He, he's Lord of your life. Okay? And that is disruptive. It's a beautiful disruption. So are you ready to put your faith in the saving blood of Jesus this morning? Will you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, calling on the name of the Lord just like Paul was? Um, Jesus called Saul, Saul, called out his name. Is he calling your name this morning to come to him? Or are you a believer who has been trying to add a little Jesus into your life but hasn't really surrendered your life to the lordship of Jesus? Of all that you are, of all that you do, of all that you possess... This morning, you can take that step and offer your life once again to Jesus totally. Jesus asked Saul to make a change. Is he asking you this morning to make some changes? And if we can help you take that next step in any way, or if you just need prayers, we would love to help you with that as we stand together and as we worship today.